Um, as Susan was sharing with us, uh, sharing with the kids, uh, this is about the section where, about uh, Jacob sending out these messengers where it gets the name. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to talk about tonight. It's a very, very fascinating uh, passage of Scripture. Before I get off in the message, because those of you that have been around here know I can get kind of excited. No, I forget. I get excited about the Word of God. Amen. <clears throat> um, in two weeks, uh, December the 8th, uh, we're going to have a Hanukkah party here. So we're going to have a, you know, a, a potluck dinner. Uh, the kids are going to bring some, a song or some music and stuff uh, for us. And then I'm going to have a real short explanation, teaching, if you will, on Hanukkah and what that means and why you should know about it. Uh, how many here really don't know that much about Hanukkah, actually, seriously? Which is okay. I mean, uh, I didn't until not that long ago. And, uh, and that's really sad uh, because it's actually pretty important. Now, it's not a biblical holiday, okay? So it's not one of those ones that God says, this is what you're supposed to do. But it has incredible prophetic implications for what's coming. So it, it is important to know about it because those of you that have been here know that what has happened, what will happen. Um, and, and, and Jesus even told us, he said, this is what you need to look for. This is what's going to be happening uh, and Hanukkah is a prelude to that. So if you understand what has happened, you'll know what to be looking for uh, in the days to come. And so that's what we'll do. Uh, if you're a guest, don't know, don't understand, um, and you want to come, we'd love to have you come. All we ask is that when you bring some food, just don't put any pig in it. Other than that, uh, you know, if you want to and you want to be uh, creative, uh, you know, Google some uh, Hanukkah uh, stuff. They typically, it typically revolves around the oil and the oil burning for eight days. And that's a whole nother thing that I'll talk about. Uh, that's probably more folklore than fact. Uh, and that's okay. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. So anyhow, with all that said, that's what we'll be doing in two weeks and it'll just be a fun night. And I uh, want to encourage you to come and we'll have a good time together. All right. So if you have the notes, you can get that out. Hopefully you have your Bible. Uh, you can open that up. <clears throat> We've made it to Genesis 32. Um, and we're going to pick up here in verse 3. Um, and in these, uh, in your notes here, I do have it in the Scriptures version. Um, I just like the way it has the, uh, the proper names in here. Helps us see and understand what's going on. So anyhow, in verse 3 at the top of the page here is where it says, And Yaakov sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, uh, the field of Edom. If you remember last week, we talked about how that Esau is the, basically the father of the Edomites because he sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, bean soup, if you will, uh, and it was red, and so was he, and so uh, that's what Edom means, and so he's the father of the Edomites. So, and at the top there also, I've got the notes for you, the outline uh, of this section uh, for you to have and, and go home and look at that if you'd like. Down at the middle of the page here, and, and th at the top again, there's, this is why this section is called this, and I've got the Hebrew name up there, Vishlaak, um, or Vaishlaak, sorry, uh, which means, and he sent. And it's just talking about him sending the messengers, and it's encapsulating this idea of Jacob meeting Esau. Anybody, everybody here familiar with the story of Jacob meeting Esau and that getting reconciled? Um, Tonight, I hope you'll, we'll have a, one of those aha moments because it is 
really fascinating. I know I say that every week, don't I? Every week. And it really is fascinating. Once again, there's nothing in your Bible by accident, folks. And you're going to see something here, I hope, tonight that you're going to go, oh, wow, that's pretty cool. So let's jump down to verse 6 where it says, uh, so the messenger, so he sends these messengers out to find Esau, you know, tell him, you know, I'm coming and kind of figure things out. In verse 6 it says, so the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and, uh, well, he's coming to meet you too, uh, but he's coming with 400 men. Can you just imagine what's going through Jacob's mind? Because when he left town, his brother was swearing that as soon as the dad died, I'm killing him. And uh, Esau was a mighty warrior um, and, uh, and a hunter. I don't want to get off into that, but you can Google that. But anyhow, he was, he was a pretty, pretty, strong, uh, pretty strong guy. Uh, so I said, he's coming with 400 men. So this is why in verse 7 it says, And Yaakov was greatly afraid and distressed. I mean, he's like, I know, you know, God told me I need to go home. I'm heading home. My brother wants to kill me. He's got his army with him. It says, so he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels and everything. He put them in two groups. So you jump to verse 9 and it says, and Yaakov said, now this is, Yaakov, is, he's praying. Jacob, he's praying. Once again, uh, in Hebrew, there's no juh sound. So there's no Jerusalem, there's no Jacob, there's no James, it's, uh, it's, it's Yaakov. Uh, and so <clears throat> Yaakov now is praying to God because he's following God's uh, directive to go back home. So this is where it picks up in verse 9, it says, And Yaakov said, O Elohim of my father Abraham and Elohim of my father Yitzhak, Yahovah, who said to me, Return to your land and to your rel- relatives, and I do good to you. So he, right here at the very beginning, he's reminded him, now you're the God of Abraham and Isaac and my God, and I'm going home, and my brother's headed this way with 400 men, and he's going to kill me. I'm doing everything you told me to do. I'm about to die. Okay? Then look what he says in verse 10. It says, this is huge. You might want to highlight this uh, in your Bible, because right here you're going to see a massive change, if you will, in Yaakov's heart from how this, this whole thing got started. Because here he says in verse 10, I do not deserve the least of all the kind acts and all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I passed over this Yardan, the Jordan, with my staff. All I had was a stick. And now I have become two groups. Just want you to highlight that part where he says, I don't deserve anything. I don't deserve any of the good things you've done for me. I don't even, underst- I don't even deserve to understand these truths you're giving me. I crossed this Jordan River with nothing but a stick in my hand. And now, basically, I'm filthy rich. I've got so many. I've got two groups of people, two camps. We're about to see just how massive uh, his wealth was. So then in verse 11, it says, and I highlighted this for you, but you might want to circle it or whatever. You see, it helps when you get involved, helps you remember. Uh, Deliver me, I pray. And I highlighted that on purpose. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, 
for I fear him, lest he come and shall smite me and the mother with their children. Now he's going to remind God again of what he said. For you said, I shall certainly do good to you and shall make your seed as the sand of the sea, which are too numerous to count. And he spent the night there and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother. Now then this is, this is not a, a number of his flock. This is just his gift to his brother. Because he later in this story, you see where he's like, I've got all these flock. I've got all these kids. I, I can't go that fast. You know, you go ahead. So this is just his gift. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 donkeys, 20 female donkeys, and 10 foals. That's just his gift to his brother. There's two things we're seeing here. Number one, when he's talking to God, he's like, you know what, I don't deserve anything. Remember, those of you that were here, when he gets the blessing, Esau sold him the birthright. But Esau and Isaac, I think, were trying to circumvent the legal agreement that Jacob and Esau had. And we talked about that. So there was a lot of people being dishonest when he deceived his dad and got the verbal blessing. But we, And it's easy to see that he believed it was rightfully his, and it was because his brother sold it to him. But he gets the verbal blessing through deceit because he believed it was his. Now we're seeing where he's saying, you know, I don't deserve anything. Why? Maybe because of 20 years of deceit with his father-in-law. Being raked over the coals, he said, you know, he changed his wages uh, 10 times. Uh, thought he married one woman and woke up and found out he married another one. Once again, it's just too much wine for that to happen. But uh, <laughs> anyways, he gets deceived all those times. He ends up marrying the two wives and all that stuff going on. Maybe after 20 years of being the brunt end of the deceit, He's, he's now learned a lesson and like, you know, uh, I don't deserve anything. And God, you're doing all this for me. Why? I don't know. And so now what's he doing? He's basically giving that birthright back to his brother out of the blessings that God had given him. He's giving back out of his wealth back to his brother. Um, when you get to verse 21, <clears throat> this is where it talks about that he, the present went on before him. We're going to come back to that comment about um, him being blessed. I, I, better, I better stick to my, uh, my notes. I need to cover a couple of things. I'm looking at two different sets of notes here. For, excuse me. Um, that part where he says, you, shall, uh, you said you shall certainly do good to me. You might just jot that down in your notes because I didn't give it to you. He's referring to that passage back in Genesis 28, 15, uh, where he told him, he said, I, I will do good. and I'm, I'm doing this. Uh, I, I'm going to be with you, and I'm going to bless you. So <clears throat> now we're going to get to uh, verse 21 where it says, um, And the present passed over before him. 
but he himself spent the night in the camp. So what's he do? He sends the present. He sends his messengers with all of these sheep and goats and cattle and, and donkeys and, and so on and so forth. Sends that forward to his brother. He's divided up the camp into two because he's thinking logistically, well, if we get attacked, maybe I can save half of us. That's what he's really thinking. He sends the present on before him across the, the stream or the little river Jabbok, um, and he stays behind. Then in verse 22, it says, And he rose up that night, took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons, and passed over the ford of the Yabbok, uh, or the Jabbok River. The ford is like, it's shallow enough they could walk across. So it says, and he took them and sent them over the stream and sent over what he had. So he sends everything. And then it makes this comment. And Yaakov was alone. So he has now, he has admitted, I don't deserve anything. He sent this gift off to try to appease his brother. He honestly believes his brother's going to try to kill him. He's coming with an army. What else would he think? Uh... He's prayed to God, so now he's more dependent on God, and he's humble. He's doing what he can, but he's totally dependent on God. He's like, this is what you said you would do for me. And now he's like, and as a matter of fact, I don't deserve anything, so he sends everybody else across, and he stays on the other side alone. So he has separated himself from his wealth, his family, basically the promise that God's going to do all this stuff through him. Verse 24, and Yaakov was left alone, and it says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And when he saw that he did not overcome him, he touched the socket of his hip. Now, this is this angel of the Lord is not overcoming Jacob. There's a plethora of ideas on what's happening here. The best everybody can come up with is, well, we don't know. It's like Susan was saying. I mean, if he's, if he's wrestling with the angel of the Lord, uh, it's kind of like it's a no match, right? I mean, it's, it doesn't even hardly make sense. But I believe, and this is my opinion, I believe that what he's doing here is he's painting a picture because that's what God often does. He's into symbolism. And he's painting a picture here. I'll show you some. <clears throat> Uh, verse 25 says, when he, um, when he saw that he didn't overcome him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was dislocated as he wrestled with him. And he said, this is the angel of the Lord, this is the angel of Yahovah, he says to him, let me go because the day is breaking. It's like, look, we've been at this all night. You need to let me go. And this is what Jacob says to him. Yaakov, he says, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Jacob is in a position where he's like, he's fearful for his life. I used to be a youth minister. I still am at heart, I believe. I always tell the kids, you know, you start teaching, you know, when you're a youth minister with teenage kids, it's kind of like wrestling, you know, and herding cats. And I used to tell them, I said, look, you guys hadn't figured this out, have you? And they just, these young punks, you know, these young, these young bucks, they look at you like, you know, I'm a football player, I'm whatever. I said, you never get in a fight with an old man. 
And they just look at you like, what are you talking about? And I said, look, you get in a fight with a young man, he'll try to fight you. An old man knows he can't keep up with you, so he'll just kill you. <laughs> they just laughed and turned around, and I said, yeah, I hope they know I'm kind of kidding, but I'm really not. <laughs> um, Jacob is older in his life at this point. You need to remember that when they left, he was an older man by that time. All this has happened. He, God has been blessing him, and he's like at the point of no return. I think for most of us, we might have gotten scared. I'm like, well, you know, I'm sitting here fighting with something that I believe is an angel of God, and, you know, and he's probably even scared for his life even doing that, right? And so he, he, he's, he's really wrestling with God, and he's at a point of no return. It's like, no, if this costs me my life, I'm not letting go until you bless me. Anybody ever been there where you thought you were at wit's end? You were at the bottom. You were at the bottom of the barrel. You, you thought, you know what? There's no other place to go from here but up, you know? Uh, and, and I believe that's where Jacob is. He's had 20 years of humility. Uh, he's got sisters that are his wives that don't get along because of what happened with their dad. Well, it's, it's, it's messed up, right? And yet God is telling him, I'm going to bless you. And he does have 11 sons and a daughter. Uh, yet his brothers, he thinks his brother's about to kill him. Uh, and so he's like, look, I'm not going to let go of you. I don't care who you are until you bless me. That's not a bad position to be in. I don't think we should see this as a negative. Literally, Jacob is like, look, I'm going to hold on to you, God. I don't care what you do to me. At this point, he's got a dislocated hip. That can't feel good. Amen? I mean, that's got a stinking heart. <laughs> and he's still holding on. I get this picture of he dislocates his hip. Jacob kind of lets go or whatever. He's trying to get away. He grabs him by the leg or whatever. He's holding on to him. He's like, you need to let me go. He's like, mm, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. You can dislocate my other hip. I'm not letting go. I'm going to hold on. I'm going to tie myself to you. I am not letting go until you bless me. Folks, it's at that point where this angel goes, so then what's your name? See, if you don't understand that God's trying to teach him a lesson and paint a picture here, that sounds like out of, out of place. So like, what do you mean, what's your name? You know who he is, for crying out loud. You showed up out of nowhere. You're God in the flesh, and you're wrestling with him. You've been wrestling with him all night. You don't know what his name is. Of course he knows what his name is. He's trying to get Jacob to say what his name is. He's been labeled as the heel grabber the usurper of his brother, a liar, a thief. He's off for 20 years. He's been lied to and stolen from for 20 years. He's got wives that don't get, his household's not real functional, quite honestly. It's pretty messed up. Um, and so after this str struggle with God, God goes, so then Jacob, what's your name? What's well, Jacob? Oh, man. And God goes, no, your name's no longer Jacob. 
Now your name is Israel. You know, there's a lot of debate over exactly what Israel means, even among the Jewish people. Because it means to strive with. It can also mean to strive along with and even rule along with God. It's not so much striving with God as in the sense of against God, but striving with God in the struggle. What is God doing? He's taking Abraham, then Isaac, and now Jacob, and Jacob is going to become the namesake for the people of Israel that God is going to use to prove to the world that he is God. That's a struggle because every demon in hell doesn't want, didn't want, and still doesn't want that to be successful. I'm going to say it again. That is why anti-Semitism is demonic. It's out of the pit of hell. Um, and so it means to, uh, to struggle with, with God... I've got a few passages. You're going to have to jot these down. I didn't give them to you on purpose. Isaiah 62, 2. It says, And the nations shall see your righteousness and all the sovereigns or kings your esteem, and you shall be called by a new name which the mouth of Yehovah designates. This is about getting a new name. You ever felt like you were defined by your past? Maybe all the time. Can anybody here other than me relate where you just go, every dumb decision I've ever made, every time I turn around sometimes, the devil or something goes, remember that one? Knucklehead, remember that one? Right? And we feel like that our past defines us. No, God defines you. God puts the definition on who you are and to whom you belong and what you are. Most people walking the face of the earth don't have a clue really what they are because scientists and doctors and idiots in our society today have brainwashed us into thinking that we're just a clump of cells. We're the very reflection of the image of God. Don't want to get started on that one again. I hate abortion. It's an abomination before God. Uh, so most people don't even realize who they are or what they are. Go to Revelation 2, verse 17. It says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the assemblies or the churches. To whom who overcomes, to him who overcomes, I shall give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I shall give him a white, stand, white stone, and on the stone a renewed name, or a new name, written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Folks, that's what we're going to get. A new name, just like Jacob. After this night, he's going to be known as Israel. Not the heel grabber, not the usurper, but the one who strives with God in the struggle. In Revelation 3, verse 12, there's one more for you. 
It says, he who overcomes, I shall make him a supporting post in the dwelling place of my Elohim. It means a pillar in the temple of God. Uh. And he shall by no means go out, and I shall write on him the name of my God, my Elohim, and the name of the city of my Elohim, the renewed Jerusalem, the renewed Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my Elohim and my renewed name. The one who overcomes, is this, this is what we're going to be called by. Folks, that's some good news, amen? We need to start now this process of stop thinking about ourselves according to our, the decisions we made in the past and the dumb mistakes we made and the dumb decisions we did and the stuff that got us where it got us. Yeah, thank you. Y'all gonna make me do this all by myself. I'll come down off this podium. Amen. Hallelujah, right? So it says, your name is no longer Jacob or Yaakov, but Israel, because you have striven with Elohim or with God and with men, and look at this, and have overcome. You've been through some tough times, but watch this. You're still here, and you don't realize this, Jacob. You think your brother's about to kill you. You are right where I want you. You have overcome. That's past tense. You ever feel like a failure? Folks, there's sometimes I think God wants us to fail so we'll get in a position where he's going to do what he wants to do with us. It's not always about roses and success and more money and more health and this, that, and the other. It's about being in the middle of God's will and bringing glory and honor to his name. That's what it's all about. <clears throat> so he says, and you have overcome, verse 29. And Yaakov asked him, saying, well, then please tell me your name. Really? Really? <laughs> and it's when he says to him, so why are you asking my name? Why do you ask my, about my name? And he blessed him there. We don't know exactly what he said, but he spoke a blessing over him. God himself spoke a blessing over Yaakov, over Israel. And then it says um, in verse 30, And Yaakov called the name of the place Peniel. For I have seen Elohim face to face. He said, I've seen, he knows. I've been talking, I've been striving with the angel of God. God made flesh manifest here. We would call that the pre-incarnate Christ or Yeshua showing up before he took on flesh permanently when he was born by Mary. That this is the physical manifestation with flesh of God on this earth. And that's what theologians would call this pre-incarnate Christ. Just a big word to say that he, he showed up before he took on flesh in a permanent way. And he goes, I have seen Elohim face to face and my life is, look at this, preserved. You need to, I did highlight it, but you might want to circle that. I'm going to go ahead and read this next verse and then we'll come back and look at something. It says, and the sun rose on him and he passed over Penuel and he limped on his hip. The rest of his life, he's got a limp. Uh, and the, the Jewish people to this day will not eat that part uh, of the thigh in remembrance of Jacob, of Israel. 
But he says, and my life is preserved. So back in verse 11, where it says um, he's praying that God will save him, right? And then here in verse 30, he says, my life is preserved. So this is the answer to his prayer. And watch this. It's the same Hebrew word, Nassau. When he was praying, my God, Nassau me, save me, preserve me, deliver me, because my brother's wanting to kill me. You said you were going to be with me. You told me to be here. I'm here. Now this guy wants to kill me, and he's got good reason to kill me. So now preserve my life. And so it says here that he said this statement that Jacob is making is, see, I have seen God face to face, and my life is Nassau, saved, preserved. And how did God save him? By showing up personally. He didn't save him because he told Jacob, here, do this and do that, and you can fake your brother out. But isn't that the type of answer we usually look for? God, if you'll just tell me what to do with this, that, and that, and then I can win, and I can be successful in this or that or whatever, and you know, I can do these things. God's like, really? I've got everything under control. Here's how your life is preserved. Here's how you're successful when I show up. Not in what you do, but in what I do. Um, I want to go to... Um, 33, chapter 33, verse 3. These 3 and 4. This is where now he's going to go over and he's going to see his brother. It says, And he himself passed over before them, bowed himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. The picture here is that he goes a little way and he bows down. He goes a little way and he bows down. He goes a little way and he bows down. Remember, the, the number seven is using your Bible to depict perfection and a number for God. Why would he do that seven times? He just had an encounter with God. And he is physically humbling himself before his brother. Why is he doing that? He's basically saying, however this turns out, it's up to God. I'm not going to do anything. I've given him a gift. I'm trying to say I'm sorry. And if he kills me, he kills me. Pretty powerful, huh? Then look at this, and it says, And Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. What a flip of the script between what happened when he left the first time where he's running and Esau is swearing to kill him. Now he's coming and humbled before his brother, and now his brother is running to meet him and instead forgive him. Wow. Why is all this happening? I think because he had a change of heart and God is there with him. So you jump to verse 9. And he said, uh, he's trying to give him this gift, and Esau's like, I I don't need it. I got plenty, dude. You've been gone 20 years. I got a lot. He's got 400 men with him. That's just the men. You have to calculate everything else that went with that. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. 
Let what you have remain with you. We're going to go down to through verse 11. It says, Yaakov said, No, please. If I have now found favor in your eyes, then receive my present from my hand because I have seen your face like seeing the face of Elohim and you are pleased with me. He is remembering what just happened. He's referencing what just ha- He's walking up limping on a stick, on a walking stick, I'm sure. His hips dislocated. This isn't a month later. This is the same morning. He's walking up with a dislocated hip. He's been up all night wrestling with God, and he says, please take what I'm giving you because I've seen your face, and to me it was like looking at God. Wow. And then he says, and you were pleased with me? What's he really saying? Esau, the only reason why you're forgiving me is not because I'm giving you the gift, but because my God is working in this. Please take this gift. He's not trying, now he's not trying to give him the gift to be appeased. He knows that God has already done it. God's already worked. I don't need it. I don't need anything. You ever been so blessed, so felt so forgiven that you thought, you know what? I don't need diddly. I've got, I got God. I, I don't need anything else. This is where Jacob is. Verse 11 says, please take my, ble- my blessing that is brought to you because Elohim has favored me. God has favored me. And because I have all I need. See what he's saying there? He says, I don't need, I got all I need, dude. Take this. And he said he urged him and he took it. So then they have this little discussion about, you know, who's going to go where and when. And a lot of people say, well, at this point, Jacob doesn't still trust his brother. That might be the case. He might be going, you know, I'm trusting God. I'm not trusting you. You can be kind of fickle. And I think instead of camping with you, I'm going to camp with God. That's my opinion. Verse 16, it says, And Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and Yaakov set out to Sukkot. And he built himself a house, and he made booths for his livestock. That is why the name of the place is called Sukkot. Little pop quiz. When the people of Israel leave on the exodus from Egypt, about 500 years after this happens. Uh, what's the first town they went to? Went to Sukkot. Um, that's not in there by accident. He goes there. He builds a house. He builds booths for his livestock. So he's going to stay there a while. And this place becomes known as booths or tabernacles or the Hebrew name Sukkot. Let's go on. Turn the page with me. It's about to get really interesting. <clears throat> so we're gonna, I'm going to skip this. The, uh, chapter 34, because we don't have time, because what we're about to get into is just so cool when you see all this stuff together. Uh, chapter 35 is where their sister, Diana, is basically raped. Uh, Simeon and Levi, through deceit, 
talked the people of Shechem and the, all the men in getting circumcised. And then while they're sore and in fever, they go in there and they kill them all. And they take a lot of the women and kids uh, as uh, slaves and they plunder the city. Important to know that. So, uh, but we're going to jump ahead to verse 35. So now God, verse 35, verse 1, it says, So Elohim says to Yaakov, rise up and go to Bethel. Remember, that is what? It stands for the house of God. I want you to go to the house of God and dwell there and make an altar to El, Elohim, or God, who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. Yaakov said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign mighty ones or the foreign gods that are among you and cleanse yourself and change your garments. You see, if you, if you read things out of context, but we don't have time tonight to chase that whole other chapter, and you go, well, why is he having to tell the people in his house to get rid of their gods? That's not making any sense. So who would have the gods? The people they brought with them and all the plunder that they stole from the city of Shechem. So they've got all this gold, gods, jewelry, the people, and whatever jewelry and earrings with gods on them and stuff that they were wearing are with them. Now, if you understand that, this is going to make sense. So he says, you need to get rid of that stuff uh, because that's found in verse 29 of the previous chapter. It says that they captured them. And in verse 29 says, and with all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives they took as captive and they plundered all that was in the houses. Okay? So now God is telling him, you need to go to Bethel. You need to go to the house of God. You need to build an altar there and worship me. And so what does Jacob do? First thing he says, okay, gang, we're getting rid of that junk. I don't care what it's worth. Verse 3 says, Let us and let us arise and go up to Bethel, and let me make there an altar to Elohim, who answered me in the day of my distress, and has been with me in the way which I've gone. So he said, We're going to go worship the God that was with me in my distress, and he saved me. Hallelujah. Amen. And then look what it says in verse 4. And so Yaakov, they gave Yaakov all the foreign gods in the text there, it's the mighty ones which were in their hands, and all their earrings, which were in their ears. And Yaakov hid them under the terebinth tree, which was near Shechem, where they took the stuff. You see, <clears throat> Jacob doesn't go, well, what if we just melted it down, we turn it into nuggets, or, well, you know what? We, when we pass these other people, we can sell it. How about that? We would be tempted to do that, wouldn't we? Let's be honest. We would be going, you know, I know I shouldn't have it, but maybe somebody else could, not. you know, maybe get a tax write-off for it or something, whatever, right? And God goes, no, get rid of it. We went over that in some of the other books we were studying in the first five books where God goes, take that stuff, you don't keep it, it's an abomination to me, it's tainted, get rid of it. And this is exactly what Jacob does before he's told in the Torah, because this is before that. 
And God is having Moses write this down. So he's getting rid of it. And he, how he gets rid of it, it's important because he doesn't try to turn it into money or make it profitable. He basically buries it. He just buries it. Nobody needs to have this junk. Why? Because it's connected to demons that are God's mortal enemies. So nobody deserves to even be able to melt it down and use it for anything. And in verse 5 it says, And they departed, and the fear of God was upon them, upon the cities that were all around them, and they did not pursue the sons of Yaakov. Now, this is where it gets, it just, it's, it's unbelievable. So, it says, uh, Yaakov came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people are with him. And he built there an altar, and he called the place El, Bethel, El, Elohim, the place of God, or the house of God, because there Elohim appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Deborah... Rebecca's nurse died. So now these wives and nurses and stuff are, are starting to die here. And he says, and she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. So that is why it's called Elon Bekuth. And then look at this in verse 9. It says, and Elohim appeared to Yaakov again when he came from Padanaram, and he blessed him again. Now this is where he's going to repeat something. And he says to him, your name is Yaakov. Your name is no longer called Yaakov, but Israel is your name. So he called his name Israel. At this point, evidently, Jacob is still kind of forgetting or whatever. And God shows up and says, now listen here, son. Your name is not Jacob anymore. It's Israel. That's how you're going to start to be called. That's what you're going to call yourself. He's an older man by this time. He's not in his 30s. He's about 75. You're now going to be called Israel, not Jacob. And Elohim said to him, I am El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. Whew. Bear fruit and increase. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. And sovereigns, kings are going to come from your body. And the land which I gave to Abraham, to Yitzhak, I give to you and to your seed after you. I give this land. He says, I am God Almighty. I am right here with you. And this is exactly what's about to happen, Jacob. You are no longer Jacob. You are Israel. He is announcing, this is the birth of my nation. Right here, right now. It starts today. Wow. And I'm going to do it with these boys. There's one more to come. And in verse 13, it says, And Elohim went up from him in that place where he'd spoken with him. And Yaakov set up a standing column in that place where he'd spoken with him, a monument of stone. He poured a drink offering over it, uh, and he poured oil on it. And Yaakov called the name of that place where Elohim spoke with him, Bethel. Then they sent out from Bethel and came to be when there, when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. Ephrath is Bethlehem. 
okay? It's an ancient name for the city of Bethlehem. We'll see that in just a second. And Rachel, this, remember, which one is Rachel? Rachel's is the one that he really loves and the one that he wanted to marry when he first went over there and Laban lied to him, okay? Rachel began to give birth. Where are they? Yeah, okay, yeah. Some of y'all hadn't forgot. You need to answer when I ask a question. It's okay, we're gonna interact here. They're right there at Bethlehem. And Rachel, the one he loves, is giving birth. It's not the one that he doesn't love. It's the one that he's always wanted to be betrothed to. Rachel is now gonna give birth and she's having a problem. And she was having great difficulty, verse 17. And it came to be as she was having great difficulty giving birth that the midwife said to her, don't fear for it is another son for you. And it came to be as her life was going out, as she is giving birth and dying, she says that she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father is who? Israel. Not Jacob, Israel. His father Israel calls him Ben-Yamin. Now then, uh, ever see the movie Ben-Hur? Ever wonder what that's? Ben in Hebrew means son or son of. Okay? So it's in the movie, it's Judah Ben-Hur. Judah, the son of Hur, is the title of that. So when you see Ben, so it's ben the first one, his wife, the mother, as she's dying in difficulty, names him Ben-Oni, which means son of suffering. Yaakov, now Yisrael says, oh no. His wife who he loves just Died. The picture is she's saying this with her last words. Name him Ben-Oni. She's gone. This is the one he loves. He's trusting God and he goes, uh-uh. Why would he say that? God changed his name just reminding him. What'd you say your name was? It's not who you were. It is now who you are declared by me. Your name is Israel. You're the one who strives with me and we are successful. She's dying. Call him suffering. Israel goes, no, no, no. Here's what you're going to call him. You're going to call him Ben-Yamin, which means son of my right hand or son of my strength. Hmm. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath. That is Bethlehem, Bethlehem, house of bread. Who else was born in Bethlehem? Yeshua. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why did God let all this happen right there? We're about to see. 
Yaakov set a standing column on her grave, which is the monument of Rachel's grave to this day. And Israel set out and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adar. Is there stuff in your Bible by accident? Why is he putting this in here? He pitched his tent by a tower. Who cares? Right? Well, just so happens, it's a very important tower. Where? Where is it? It's in Bethlehem. Well, imagine that. You see where this is going? Some of you might. This tower of Adar. You know what that tower means? You know what that word Adar means? Or what this phrase means? Tower of the flock. That's what the tower means. Tower of the flock. I want to read something to you. This, is, this area on the outskirts of Bethlehem is also mentioned in Talmudic writings. According to the Talmud, all cattle found in the area surrounding Jerusalem as far as the Migdal Adar, Migdal Adar is the Tower of Adar, it's the Hebrew term for it, were deemed to be holy and consecrated and could only be used for sacrifices in the temple. In particular, for the peace Hmm. and Passover sacrifices. There was thus a special consecrated circle around the city of Jerusalem. The Hebrew prophet Micah also refers to the Migdal Adar. Here's how it is in the ESV, but we're going to read it in the Scriptures in just a second. And you, O Tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Oh my goodness, watch this. Based on that prophecy in Micah, prominent I'm just reading this off of a place that I go to every now and then in Israel. It's a, a, a messianic, if you will, a Christian uh, news site there in Jerusalem that I've been uh, going to every now and then for probably 20 years. <clears throat> it says, based on that prophecy, prominent Jewish writers concluded in the Midrash, uh, don't want to define that just yet, uh, that from all of the places in Israel, it would be at the Megdal Adar where the arrival of the Messiah would be declared first. Now, let me just go ahead and read these other two passages because... Uh, God doesn't do anything by accident or happenstance. In Micah 4, and it, once again, I'm going to read that whole passage, but I'm going to read a little bit more of it because it's important to read our Bible in, in context. So now listen to everything around that statement. And you, O tower of the flock, 
stronghold of the daughter of Zion, Zion. It shall come to you. The former rule shall come. The reign of the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry aloud? Is there no sovereign in you? Has your counselor perished? For pain has gripped you like a, what? A woman in labor. You think God is doing all this by accident, having these prophets write this stuff down by accident? There's not a connection. Who died here? Rachel. Rachel died and gave birth to a son who was given two names. One was a son of sorrow. One was a son of strength. Who does that sound like? Yeshua. Isaiah 53. A man of sorrow, stricken with grief, bruised and afflicted. We esteemed him not. God crushed him for our sins. Yet he is also the very son of God with whom he is well pleased. He's the suffering servant. He's the king of kings. You know, tell me all that stuff happened by accident? No way. Right there? Right there? For you have pain that's gripped you like a woman in labor. Be in pain and deliver, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor. For now you are to leave the city, and you shall go and dwell in the field, and you shall go to Babel, but there you shall be delivered. There Yahovah shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. And now many Gentiles shall be gathered against you who are saying, let, let her be defiled. Let her, let her eyes look upon Zion. But they do not look, know the thoughts of Yahovah. They don't know the thoughts of God, nor do they understand his counsel. He's also prophesying of what's going to happen in the future. He said, they don't, even, they don't even know me. They don't know my thoughts. They don't even know what I'm up to. Mm. For he has gathered them like sheaves to the threshing floor. Rise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I make your horn iron and your hooves bronze. And you shall beat many peoples into pieces. And I shall seclude their grain to Yahovah and their wealth to the master of all the earth. He's saying, all this is going to happen. When's that going to happen? At the end of time. And he says, guess what? I'm going to bring all the wealth of all the nations right here. And I'm going to give it all to you. And I'm going to settle all accounts with all people that come against you. But this is a prophecy about Bethlehem. Now you go to Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 8. It says, In that same country there were shepherds in, in the fields, uh, living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. Everybody know that story? Luke chapter 2, right? Oh, yeah. And it says, And look, a messenger of Yahovah stood there. He stood before them. And the esteem or the glory of Yahovah shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. And the messenger said to them, do not be afraid for look, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be to all people because there was born to you in the city of David, a savior who is Messiah, the master. And this is a sign to you. You shall find a baby wrapped up and some will say in swaddling clothes, lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was with the messenger a crowd of heavenly hosts praising Elohim and saying, Esteem to Elohim in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Where did that happen? Folks, the people that were in the field and in that tower were priests keeping watch over the sacrificial lambs that were raised 
and cared for there in Bethlehem and especially the sheep that were raised for the Passover sacrifice. Where? At the Magdal Adar. God allowed all this stuff to happen and say, and this child, Joseph, that's going to be what? He's going to, I mean, Benjamin is the brother of Joseph, the one that Joseph loves and is so concerned about. When he ends up, I'm getting way ahead of us, but when he ends up in Egypt and his brothers show up and they go, you got another brother? Because he wants to know about Benjamin because Benjamin was the promise. Joseph becomes a type of Messiah, but what? He's concerned about that brother, the little one, the one that had the two names. It was called son of sorrow. No, son of my strength. Even his birth is a foreshadowing of Yeshua coming and dying on the cross so that you and I could get saved in a very specific place. When I study this stuff and I just get so encouraged and, and, and excited about the very word of God and I go, you know, I've had so many people that I try to share this stuff with and only to have Christians get offended. And I go, do you not understand, evidently don't, the richness of the scriptures that you're divorcing yourself from when you say the Old Testament doesn't apply anymore. It's meaningless. Doesn't, you know, we're divorced from it. I'm like, you obviously don't know your Bible. You think you do. And you actually think you know what you're talking about. But you're actually, sorry, pretty ignorant on what it actually says. And why it says what it says. When it says it. And why certain things happen. And why God allowed certain things to happen a certain way in a certain place. Why? Because he's painting a picture. Because we're kind of dense. We need to see a picture. And we have to be told about 50 million times. He's like, look, I love you. I want to have a relationship with you. I want you to have a relationship with me. I want you in my house. In my house, I have rules. And my rule is not everybody rules. So we're going to live like this, okay? And when you start trying to tell people that, they start getting offended. And so here we are, starting almost into December. We just had Thanksgiving. And now you got all the Christmas insanity going on. And now you're going to have everybody arguing over, you know, let's keep Christ in Christmas. And everybody knows, well, he wasn't born on the 25th of December. He was actually probably conceived around Hanukkah, which makes sense. Festival of lights, he's the light of the world. John 1, 1, which we're going to get there when we finish Genesis. We'll march through the book of John. I'm looking forward to that. It's going to be fun. Uh, and, uh, but he was most likely born during the Feast of Tabernacles. Nine months from now. Um, but we want to argue about things 
that you can't win. You can't even intellectually win the argument about you know, like keeping Christ in Christmas. You cannot intellectually and historically win that argument other than we want to keep our traditions the way we have our traditions because we like our traditions, whether it's right or godly or not. We just want to do what we do. And I'm sorry for some of you if this is offensive. I'm not trying to be offensive. I'm just trying to say this is what the Bible says. And we want to try to love Him and worship Him and not be legalistic. And no, we're not going to drink the Kool-Aid. And we're not bringing any snakes in here. And, you know, no kind of weirdness going on. Not on purpose anyhow. Uh, and, uh, but we want to read the Scriptures for what they say and serve our great God and King. And so we got people going, you're going to keep Hanukkah? I'm like, yeah, I'm going to keep Hanukkah. What are you going to do that for? Well, uh, because it has some prophetic significance, and I would like to know what's going on so that when it happens, I'll be prepared. Pretty much just that simple. Do you have to? No, you don't have to. You don't have to. No, it's no big deal. You don't have to. But it's like, why would I not want to know what's going on? It's like, if I'm going to drive a car, I'd like to know when I'm supposed to start and when I'm supposed to go and when I'm supposed to stop. I'd also like to know when you're supposed to stop so that I can be watching you, and if you decide not to stop, I'll go ahead and stop and let you by. Right? Uh, that's what's going on with all this stuff. And so God does all these things to try to show us, and then we go, yeah, but I don't want to study that. I, 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 don't, I don't want to get into that. Did you know this? And I, some of you do because you've heard me teach on this. But that whole thing about you're going to see a child, a baby, wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and that's going to be your sign. Here's your sign. You know, it's, he's, he's going to be the Messiah. He's going to be uh, this, you know, deliverer. You're going to see a baby. They're usually wrapped up in stuff. Well, you know what he was probably wrapped up in? You remember when Mary saw her cousin Elizabeth and her baby, John the Baptist, leaps in her womb and they have all this talk? And uh, Elizabeth's husband was a priest. They don't throw their used robes in the trash. They cut them up. They will use them as wicks in the lamps and menorahs and stuff in the temple. They will also cut them into strips to use on, yes, the Passover sacrificial lambs. And especially the special ones. Elizabeth and her husband knew what Mary was carrying. We don't know this for fact, but what are the odds that they said, you need to take this and you need to wrap this baby up in this when it's born as a gift from us? That didn't happen. That's why the angel said, you're going to see a child wrapped in something and it's also going to be in a feeding trough. And that's why you're going to know that that baby is the one. Because that baby is the Lamb of God sent for the sins of the world. And you got a baby 
and the angels showing up at the Magdaladar talking to the shepherds who are priests watching over the sacrificial lambs. What just happened? Let's go see what it is. Whoa, what's this baby doing in this stuff? This is the Messiah. Folks, even the strips of cloth on our Messiah when he was a baby, God was planning all of that out. Even the names of Ben-Oni to Ben-Yamin for one child to even be a foreshadowing of the child that will be born there that will be the suffering servant and the king of kings. Nothing is by accident. God loves you so much. So much. He wants to walk with you. Now. Not just when you get to heaven. Who told you that junk? He wants to walk with you now. He doesn't want you to think about yourself according to your bad decisions, but according to who you are in Him because of His presence, His peace and forgiveness that He's given to us and even put His Holy Spirit within us, put His name upon us and said, I'm going to see you safely home. The devil wants you to think you just need to survive just, be, just survive in this life, and then it'll all be okay when you get into heaven. No. Yeshua said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Now, that you would understand who you are in the kingdom. You'd be able to stand in your faith and tell the devil, get out of my front door before I kick you out. Because you realize you're a child of the king. You also realize you were created in his image you also realize that his image is in your DNA. And you also realize because of what the scripture says that you and I will rule and reign over angels. Therefore, any dumb angel that rebelled against God is nothing compared to who you are. Really? Amen. <laughs> Thank you. It's being recorded, by the way. <laughs> uh, I mean, for crying out loud, we're going to reign and rule with Christ. Scripture says we've been given the right to partake of the very divine nature of God. You are not a low life saved by grace. If God has forgiven you, you are a child of the king and destined for greatness in his kingdom. To reign and rule with him on a remade earth and a remade Jerusalem, with a real body on a real earth, when we get these glorified bodies, and he's going to remake everything, you're not going to be floating around in this ethereal, ghostly existence for eternity. We're going to get new bodies. I'm planning on mine having hair. <laughs> Just saying. I don't think I'm going to be limping. Folks, God loves you. He wants to see you do what? Watch this. Strive with Him 
conquering and storming the gates of hell and telling other believers, you need to know who you are. You're not a defeated wimp. Stop listening to that lie. You're not a drug addict. You're not an alcoholic. You're not somebody addicted to sex and this, that, and the other. When you get so connected to God, all that other stuff starts to fade away and the devil lose all his strength and authority in your life. When you realize who you are, you can go, I'm not that. I don't, I don't have to do that because I don't want to do that because that's, well, that's not who I am. Most people keep struggling because they don't know who they are. They still think that they're this addicted idiot. And that's Satan telling you that. When you get it in your head, uh uh-uh, uh-uh. I ain't even scared of you, Satan. Whatever. Oh, you want to kill this? You think I'm going to get scared? (laughs) Right. Like I said, don't get in a fight with an old man. He don't care anymore. I'm really serious. You young guys don't know yet. You older guys, can can y'all relate? It's like, whatever. Oh, so I'm going to get a fast ticket home? Bring it on, dude. When you really understand that, man, it will set you free. You will find that you are empowered to walk with God for his word to come to life for you and you be set free from all that bondage and guilt and shame. And when it comes in your head, you can literally say, devil, I think you reminded me of that, and that's not who I am. And as a matter of fact, I don't know exactly what it is just yet, but God's already given me a new name, and it's written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And on the other side, he's going to give me a stone, and my name's going to be on it. And guess what? Your name ain't going to be on it. I'm going to have my rock with my name on it. And it's a name that God gave me. Not my mama. Not my daddy, not my nickname that they gave me in the locker room in high school, right? Or whatever it is, not the name that I have in my head because of the dumb things I did or the name that my husband was always calling me or the name that my wife was calling me or the name that my dad called me all the time growing up. That's not who I am. I'm a child of the king. And watch this. Nobody is going to change that or take that away from me. Now that's some good news, isn't it? That's powerful. That's the God that loves you. 